Good evening. We're in 1 Samuel 12. Uh, Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. And we ask, Lord, that your Holy Spirit minister to us as we study it. And we read through your scriptures. In Jesus' name, amen. Farewells are are an interesting thing, right? You have uh, the professional athlete who uh, announces their retirement. And often it's, you know, with this face full of tears. And uh, you have politicians bidding farewell um, because of one reason or another. And there's always this positive spin as they're exiting office, even though they're resigning for something negative that they did. But Samuel has this farewell speech as well in in chapter 12 of 1 Samuel. And he's not stepping down as a prophet. uh, Rather, he's stepping down as a judge. He's not stepping down spiritually, but he's stepping down politically since there is now a king in Saul. And we're going to notice that Samuel gets a bit feisty on his way down, and there's a little tood in, in him as he's stepping down. And the main point to uh, Samuel's farewell speech is, is that the covenant is both good news and it's bad news for God's people. And Samuel is not going to sugarcoat that bad news. And even though he addresses the Israelites of that time with this news, we can accept this news for ourselves as well. Now, there's a key issue here in chapter 12, and that key issue is that God is to be put first. And admitting guilt uh, doesn't cause God to desert us. You know, our confession doesn't make Him distance Himself from us, but it actually reestablishes true communion with God. And this allows God to verbalize His commitment to us. And we can actually tell the truth to God and actually survive it. And God... He, he loves us enough to, to help us see our wrongness, our rotten attitudes within us. And, and we'll see this in the miracle of, of the rain at the wheat harvest later on in chapter 12. To help the people see that they truly ignored God. And we'll also see that once the people repented, that the assurances by God and Samuel, those assurances and reassurances began. Now in the last few chapters, starting with chapter 8, there's this constant theme on the lips of Samuel. He He does not want a king. right? Samuel made that clear. And even though God allowed it, chapter 8, verses 7, 9, and 22, and told Samuel he was to help Israel in finding a king for them, Samuel as a leader was instructed to listen to the people. But Samuel had a problem with the concept. And Samuel saw all along with the Lord in chapter 8, verse 7, that wanting a king was a sign of Israel wanting to take things into their own hands to control their own political destiny, to control their own safety rather than depending on God for those things. And it's not that Samuel didn't want Israel to be safe. He did. But he knew that Israel's safety didn't lie in a king, but it lied in the king. And it was only in God that Israel had a chance of survival. But Samuel cooperated in finding Israel a king in chapter 8, verses 10 through 18, and also in chapter 10, verses 18 through 19. And even though Samuel helped find a king, he still tried to get the people to see that their impatience to get a king, that that was all in forgetting God through the whole thing. It was just kind of on their own. That even if the king was an awesome guy and it was a wonderful success, that putting God first was actually the key issue here. It wasn't anything about a king. And last week we read of the celebration at Gilgal where the Israelites renewed the kingdom. They made peace offerings and rejoiced in this great victory over Nahash. And God delivered them from the Ammonites, and it was just a great day. And now we continue with the story, chapter 12, verse 1. 
Now Samuel said to all Israel, Indeed, I have heeded your voice in all that you said to me, and have made a king over you. And now here is the king walking before you, and I am old and gray-headed. And look, my sons are with you. I have walked before you from my childhood to this day. Here I am. Witness against me before the Lord and before his anointed. Whose ox have I taken? Or whose donkey have I taken? Or whom have I cheated? Whom have I oppressed? Or from whose hand have I received any bribe with which to blind my eyes? I will restore it to you. And they said, You have not cheated us or oppressed us, nor have you taken anything from any man's hand. Then he said to them, The Lord is witness against you, and his anointed is witness this day, that you have not found anything in my hand. And they answered, He is witness. So after the celebration, Samuel addressed the group because he's still worried. And have you ever been in a situation where you just, you were the wet blanket? Everything was going cool and you were like, right? And where you had to get the group to focus on a tough issue that had to be dealt with. Do do most politicians confront the key issues or the unpopular issues when times are good? Usually not. It's not a smart political move to do that. Usually really unpopular, tough problems are only dealt with when it comes to light, then everyone is dealing with it and then it makes it politically popular to then bring it up. But Samuel's not your ordinary leader or ordinary politician that even at this great celebration, he brings up really unpopular issues. So Samuel brought up an old issue that has twice been ignored and he asked the Israelites to remember three things and he opened with saying, Indeed, I have heeded your voice. And the Hebrew word for heeded is the same word used for listen or obey. And Samuel heard their request for a king, and he obeyed their request. And he wanted to point out to them that they got their way. Right? It it was you. It wasn't me. You guys wanted this, not me. And we often want something that's, that's in our best interest. But good leadership doesn't always insist on getting its way every time. God had allowed the Israelites to have a different form of government and and seemed willing to work with such an arrangement, even though it may not have been the best for them. Samuel had been commanded three times in chapter 8, verses 7, 9, 22, to listen or obey the request of the Israelites. And Samuel pointed it out to the people that this was your doing. I wasn't for this, right? He let them know, you got your way. And we can interpret this as Samuel complaining or that he's just letting the people know the current state of affairs, that now they have a king, and that he's an old and gray-headed guy. And what is Samuel after in verse 3? What is he trying to get at? Well, he could be reminding them that though things have changed and he's no longer in charge, that things weren't so bad under his rule. And maybe we we tend to put down the past when something new arrives, and Samuel reminds them of some facts, and an important one is that he never cheated them. It's good to recognize the good aspects of the past. It's not to glorify the past or ponder too much on you know the good old days, but to honestly and to accurately reflect and assess the past. And Samuel wasn't asking them to return to the past to, to do the way things were done back then, uh, but to reflect on the integrity that he had as a leader. And you notice that the people do acknowledge that Samuel never cheated them, and, and they agreed that the anointing of Saul is witness to Samuel's innocence. 
And we see in verses 3 through 5 that Samuel had them think about the past by asking them to verbally commit themselves to assessing his guilt or his innocence in regards to his honesty, in regards to his integrity. And what Samuel was doing was he was justifying himself. He was vindicating himself. And sometimes it's just good to be forced to verbalize the truth, to acknowledge you know, what you say and, and to verbalize, oh yeah, that, that guy's a good guy. He, he never cheated us. He was a good leader. And notice that Samuel doesn't speak negatively of Saul. He doesn't call him king, but the Lord's anointed. And as one who is worthy of the respect to be the authoritative witness to what is right, to what is correct. And do you know what's really odd? They had a good, honest politician. Don't you find that odd? Samuel was a good, honest politician. And what's even more strange? They wanted a change. He was already a good, honest guy. And they wanted a change. Isn't that weird? That's strange. But Samuel vindicated himself. He justified himself. And then he accused them. Verses 6 through 12. Then Samuel said to the people, It is the Lord who raised up Moses and Aaron, and who brought your fathers up from the land of Egypt. Now therefore stand still, that I may reason with you before the Lord concerning all the righteous acts of the Lord, which he did to you and your fathers. When Jacob had gone into Egypt, and your fathers cried out to the Lord, then the Lord sent Moses and Aaron, who brought your fathers out of Egypt, and made them dwell in this place. And when they forgot the Lord their God, he sold them into the hand of Sisera, commander of the army of Hazor, into the hand of the Philistines, and into the hand of the king of Moab, and they fought against them. Then they cried out to the Lord and said, We have sinned, because we have forsaken the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtoreths. But now deliver us from the hand of the, our enemies, and we will serve you. And the Lord sent Jerubbabel, Bedin, Jephthah, and Samuel, and delivered you out of the hand of your enemies on every side, and you dwelt in safety. And when you saw that Nahash, king of the Ammonites, came against you, you said to me, No, but a king shall reign over us, when the Lord your God was your king. Samuel brings them back into their history. He brings them back to the Israelites' anointed leaders in Moses and Aaron, who God used to deliver Israel out of slavery in verse 6. And verse 7 is interesting. You notice the verb reason here. And he says, Stand still that I may reason with you before the Lord concerning all the righteous acts of the Lord. And that word reason means to enter into judgment with you, to enter into controversy with you. See, Samuel had been justified by the people. And after he was justified, he accused them of idolatry in verses 8 through 12. And in verses 8 through 12, he begins to build this case against Israel by bringing them back to their history and why he is accusing them of idolatry. And so there's a pattern that the Israelites had that they're breaking now in accepting Saul as king. So let's, let's take a look at this. So he starts building this, this case to point out their idolatry starting in verse 8 where he brings up the story of Jacob going down to Egypt where the Egyptians made the Israelites slaves and they were in bondage and he oppressed them. So, so they cried out to God and God sent Moses and Aaron leadership from God who brought them out of bondage. Leadership sent and anointed by God. So here's the pattern. They're in bondage. They're oppressed. They cry out to God. God sends leadership and God uses them to deliver them out of that bondage and that oppression. Then in verses 9 through 11, and this is the time of the judges. In verse 9, we're told that they forget the Lord their God. 
Samuel reminds them of what caused God to deliver the Israelites into the hand of their enemies, which was that they forgot the Lord. And it was God who brought them out of Egypt and made them what they were, but they forgot Him. So they were put under this Canaanite rule with Sisera. They were put under Moabite rule with rulers like Eglon. And they were also put under the Philistine rule. Then in verse 10, they cried out to God for their oppression under those different rulers. And they even confessed their sins. And again, God sent His leadership. God sent judges. Right? Jerubbabel, Bidden, Jephthah, and Samuel. He sent those judges to deliver them. And it's the same pattern. There was this oppression. There was this bondage. And then there was this crying out to God for help. Crying out to God for deliverance. Then God sends leadership, and in this case judges, to deliver them out of that oppression. To deliver them out of that bondage. And you notice here in verse 10, when the Israelites cry out to God, do you see these two major parts that they have in their prayers? One is their confession of sin of how they've forsaken the Lord and served other gods. The second thing is, they requested deliverance from their enemies and they promised to serve the Lord. Then Samuel brings them back to Israel's anointed leaders again in verse 11, pointing out that it was leadership sent from God and delivered Israel from their oppression, from their bondage. Now, Now what do the historical accounts of Israel's deliverance have in common? The Israelites never deserved deliverance. But they cried out to God. They cried out to the Lord. They cried out asking for help, and they acknowledged their need, and then God delivered. See, there was a humility for them to recognize that they couldn't solve their own problems. There was a brokenness that caused them to cry out to God. But there's none of that in requesting a king. And what Samuel was doing was he was reciting the history of the book of Judges. If you go back to the book of Judges and read that, that's basically the stories he's talking about. And the people sinned. They were oppressed by their enemies. They cried out for help. Then God sent anointed leadership to deliver them out of that bondage. And this pattern is repeated several times through those 12 judges whose careers are recorded in the book of Judges. And Samuel sees himself in this pattern. He inserts himself there. And let's read that verse again. Verse 12. And when you saw that Nahash, king of the Ammonites, came against you, you said to me, No, but a king shall reign over us when the Lord your God was your king. So you notice the pattern change. Where was the humility? Where was that crying out? Where, it's not there anymore. Now we're, we're talking about the Ammonites and their ruler Nahash, who we talked about a week ago. And Nahash wanted to scoop the eyes out of all the Israelite men, and he wanted to not only conquer them, but he wanted to humiliate them. And instead of looking to God... Crying out to God for this coming oppression. They said, no, but a king shall reign over us. So here the pattern changed. From from their history, we saw that they were in bondage, oppressed. They cried out to God, and God provided leadership to, to deliver them from that bondage. But with Nahash, with the Ammonites, they took matters into their own hands. With Nahash, they were facing oppression, but they didn't cry out to God. Rather, they cried out for a king when they already had one. And the Israelites came up with their own solution rather than seeking the Lord's provision of deliverance. And they were depending on themselves rather than depending on God. So here you have their idolatry. It was that they were not seeking God first. And as we've said in past studies, there was a provision for the king, right? Deuteronomy chapter 17 permitted it. So having a king wasn't the wrong thing. 
It was their reason for a king that was wrong. It was their motive that was wrong. It was idolatry. It was rejection of God as their king by not looking to Him for deliverance, by not looking to Him for help, for provision. They looked to themselves for answers. Idolatry. And we're often guilty of this ourselves, aren't we? We have this tendency uh, to kind of solve things just on our own without God. And there's, a, and there's this crisis that we have that we face in our life that, that's you know, looming over the horizon there and it's coming our way. And then we think to ourselves, oh, I'll take care of that my way. I, I know the best way to handle that problem. I can, I can, I can deal with that on my own. And, and maybe you do know the best way to deal with it. And maybe it's the same way that God would deal with it. But we go about things independent of God without seeking His guidance, without seeking His counsel at all. That's not right. And perhaps we've become too self-reliant where God has provided deliverance for us over and over and over and over again in our past. And now we think that we know better, that He's delivered us so much, just like the Israelites, that we've come to this place now that we're like, oh, we know. I know how to do things. I know how to... Leave me alone. I can, I can do things without you. And... We have to be careful not to act idolatrous in our actions, independent of God. Do you recall Mark chapter 6, that story of the feeding of the 5,000? And the disciples are trying to send the people away, and Jesus tells them, no, no, feed them. And the disciples wonder, like, how in the world are we going to feed them? Right? And then Jesus performs this miracle with the five loaves and the two fish, and he feeds everyone. This is an incredible, supernatural miracle. Then the disciples get in the boat to go to the other side of Galilee, and they get frustrated during this storm. And then Jesus comes walking to them in this, on top of the sea because nothing can keep Jesus from coming to his people who are in trouble. But they're totally freaked out. They're freaked out. They think it's a ghost. And, and then Jesus gets into the boat, and then the wind stops. But here's the interesting thing in verses 51 and 52 of Mark chapter 6. And they were greatly amazed in themselves beyond measure and marveled, for they had not understood about the loaves, because their heart was hardened. It's interesting. Part of the reason they were greatly amazed about what happened on the sea that Jesus was walking there and the sea was calm, because they didn't get the miracle that happened right before. That's why they were amazed. Right? And you know what's awesome is that it was, it was 5,000 men. So it's not even the women and the children counting that. Who knows how many? It's like maybe 10,000, maybe even more. And so if Jesus were able to feed those thousands of people from five loaves and two fish, that he was able to miraculously help thousands of people who didn't have food, and now they're full, and they have extra food, and, and handle that food problem with five loaves and two fish, is it really that amazing that he can walk on water? Is it really that amazing? He fed thousands from this thing. This is amazing? If Jesus proved to be miraculously helpful in feeding, don't you think he can do other miraculous things like walk on water? Probably. And it's the same thing Israel was guilty of. They couldn't see how God was able to miraculously deliver in 1 Samuel chapter 12 or uh, against the Ammonites. They, they just decided to take it into their own hands instead. They forgot what happened in the past with the deliverance from Egypt, with the deliverance that all the judges provided. And in, in this case with Nahash, they wanted to provide an answer for themselves. It was idolatrous. And this Nahash crisis was handled not by crying out to God, but 
by them demanding a king. So Samuel worried that the necessary repentance, what was necessary in terms of their brokenness and their humility before, of seeking the Lord and crying out to Him under their oppression, that wasn't taking place. That wasn't there anymore. Their heart wasn't in the right place anymore. Samuel knew that the king was not the real answer to Israel's problems. Despite them winning that battle, that that was not the right answer. They needed the king, not a king. Verse 13, back to 1 Samuel chapter 12. Now therefore, here is the king whom you have chosen and whom you have desired. And take note, the Lord has set a king over you. If you fear the Lord and serve Him and obey His voice and do not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then both you and the King who reigns over you will continue following the Lord your God. However, if you do not obey the voice of the Lord but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you as it was against your fathers. So we have a promise here, but we also have a threat here. And the promise in verse 14 is if the Lord's will is done, then the people and the king will be following the Lord. It's not about being religious. It's not about just doing religion. That's not what God wants. God actually wants us to do what the Lord wants, what He deems as important. It's not about just going to church. It's not just about doing religious things. It's about living the life that the Lord has charted for us in His Word. And you notice that the king is subject to this as well. Right? He's held just as accountable to the Lord's will. Right? The people and the king are held responsible for the words and the commandments of God. The king, the ruler of a nation, is not above the law. He is under it, just like everyone else. And then there's this threat in verse 15. The Lord Himself will be against them. Israel doesn't have to worry about their enemies what they really have to worry about is God Himself. And if the church only pretends to follow the Lord, but doesn't really do what the Lord asks in His Word and follow His will, the church's greatest enemy is not out there. The church's greatest enemy is God Himself. Verse 16, Now therefore stand and see this great thing which the Lord will do before your eyes. Is today not the wheat harvest? I will call to the Lord, and He will send thunder and rain, that you may perceive and see that your wickedness is great, which you have done in the sight of the Lord in asking a king for yourselves. So Samuel called to the Lord, and the Lord sent thunder and rain that day, and all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. And all the people said to Samuel, Pray for your servants to the Lord your God, that we may not die. For we have added to all our sins the evil of asking a king for ourselves." You notice how Samuel brings everything to where he's at, to the present in verse 16. He tells the Israelites, live in the now. Right? He's asking a question, is today, today not the wheat harvest? And in verse 17, when he says this, this is giving us a time frame in Israel. This is telling us that it's mid-May to mid-June. And, and what is all this rain stuff all about? What's the big deal about this rain stuff? Well... If it rained during that time frame, during the wheat harvest, it would be a very obvious, supernatural sign from God. Why? Because that's the dry season in Israel. There is no rain. Right? So, there is no rain. And this is not just talking about a sprinkle. God sent thunder and He sent rain. It poured. 
And this is like us having snow in September. Virtually impossible, right? We have these Indian summers. It, it, it's really, it, we wouldn't have, it just doesn't happen. It would be miraculous. Thunder and rain during a wheat harvest? Never. Never. And Israel clearly saw that God is in control. They got the point that deliverance and salvation was only from God and not from their king. You know why? Because during the, the wheat harvest, if this heavy downpour came up, it would mess up with their wheat harvest yield. Right? What they depended on for sustenance, God can totally wipe out. He could. He's God. He could do that. Even when they don't expect it. It's dry season. God is in control. Why did, why did he perform this supernatural act? Because sometimes we need to be reminded that we are in his hands. That he's in control. That, you know, oh, that will never happen. We can depend on these seasons and whatever. No, God. God can do whatever he wants. I can make it rain during the dry season. I can influence your wheat yields that you guys depend on to eat. Right? That God is who is in power and that obedience is not a suggestion. And you look at verse 17 again. That you may perceive and see that your wickedness is great. It was a sign of God's displeasure on their insistence on a king at this time and the rejection of his kingship. And God was giving them this clear sign about what he thought about their decision. And God was showing them how evil their request was by giving them this very public, supernatural demonstration of his displeasure. All of Israel saw this. And Israel got the message in verse 19. How did they respond? In fear. They responded in fear. And then they asked Samuel to pray for them. And they finally, finally, that crying out to God, they finally confessed that their desire for a king was sinful. And again, we know from previous studies that kingship itself was not wrong. right? But in this case, it was an excuse for not depending on the Lord. So what God was doing with this public statement was He was pointing out their stankiness. Right? You know what I mean by stank? And when something stinks, you just throw it away. No big deal. But when something stanks, you point it out. You're like, ooh. This stank. Come here. Smell this. Right? And so, ooh, this stank. And so all of Israel knew their stankiness. The rain came down. Everyone saw it. They stank. And so thunder and rain during the wheat harvest. Man, that can't be. But oh, it is raining. And we stank. And God is showing how displeasured He was. And He was showing Israel that they really deserved God's wrath. That maybe God should have flooded that whole thing. They realized all the stuff and they were really afraid. They, they wanted Samuel to intercede for them. And we have a similar teaching in the New Testament in Colossians chapter 3, verses 5 and 6 about the wrath of God. Right? Verse 5, Therefore put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience. You see, there's, there's this unapologetic appeal to fear here, right? The Bible doesn't apologize for that. 
It wasn't like in 1 Samuel 12 in that there's this supernatural sign and, 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 and people can see that and be afraid. You know, this is just, the New Testament here is just basically saying, here's the wrath. It's the same wrath. It's the same wrath as that rain falling down during the wheat harvest. And, and how about Luke chapter 12, verses 4 through 5, where Jesus doesn't seem to be apologetic and he's not phased at all about what he's saying here. It says, And I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body, and after that have no more that they can do. But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has power to cast into hell. Yes, I say to you, fear him. You see, Jesus is looking to comfort and bring calm to his disciples and, and the challenges they're about to face. Now, do you find verse 5 at all comforting and calming? Right? You know, this is our gracious, loving Lord, baby Jesus, saying this. Right? He's telling us to fear God, who has power to do more than kill the physical body. He has power to cast into hell. There's a fearfulness in this, isn't there? And both the New Testament and the Old Testament instruct us to tremble before a frightening God. And perhaps God isn't as tolerant as some have made Him to be. Maybe some of us are ignoring His Godness. And perhaps we've made Him more of a mascot of the church rather than God. He is God. God is holy. And when sin is present before a holy God, the only appropriate response, the only proper response is fear. What else is it going to be? Humor? There's no other appropriate response. Right? So verse 20, continuing on in 1 Samuel. Then Samuel said to the people, Do not fear. You have done all this wickedness, Yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. And do not turn aside, for then you would go after empty things which cannot profit or deliver, for they are nothing. For the Lord will not forsake His people, for His great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you His people. Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord in ceasing to pray for you, but I will teach you the good and the right way. Only fear the Lord and serve Him in truth with all your heart, for consider what great things He has done for you. But if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. What do you say to people when they commit major screw-ups and they've rejected the kingship of God? Samuel says in verse 20, Do not fear. You have done all this wickedness, yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. What did Samuel do to the Israelites? Did he just continue to pour more salt on the wound? No, right? He didn't. He, the people admitted their sin. They confessed their sin. In verse 19, they finally saw that their lack of dependence on God was wrong, that it was sinful. So after repenting, Samuel encouraged them to serve the Lord with all their heart. And they were encouraged not to turn aside from following the Lord. How gracious God is. 
How gracious He is to forgive us, continually forgive us, whenever we come to Him in repentance, whenever we cry out to Him, and to allow Him to minister to us. And, and then, you know what? Then we're allowed to continue to serve Him. We are always allowed that point again. How gracious God is. And, and there are these three assurances that Samuel gives to the Israelites. One of them is, Samuel tells them that God won't forsake them. Verse 22, For the Lord will not forsake His people. For His great namesake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you His people. He's not going to wipe them off the face of the planet. God is going to keep His people. God promised not to abandon His people. And it's not that we deserve any of His loyalty. It's just because that's who He is. That's the character of God. God has chosen His people. He wants to keep them. He's not getting rid of them. The second assurance is that ministry is going to continue. Look at verse 23. Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord in ceasing to pray for you, but I will teach you the good and right way. Now Samuel stepping down from his political seat, from his being a judge, but Samuel is going to continue in ministry. He's going to continue as a prophet. And he's going to intercede for the Israelites in prayer, and he's going to continue teaching the Word of God. Now don't you think that Samuel had every right Every right to walk away from these ungrateful people. Didn't he? Right? His ministry was rejected. They weren't listening to him. And he had every right to just head off. Right? And if anyone had the right to leave with this bad taste in their mouth and think, I'm leaving. Forget it. You guys have fun with what you created. It would be Samuel. And he tells them he's going to intercede for them in prayer and teach them the good and the right way. So Samuel assures them that the ministry, hey, it's going to continue. Don't worry, I'm going to stick around, right? And that he hasn't given up on them, that he's still going to be there, he's still going to be their prophet. And then there's a third assurance. He gives them a clear direction on how to proceed after this repentance. Verse 24, Only fear the Lord and serve Him in truth with all your heart, for consider what great things He has done for you. This is what they have to do. And this is essentially what Samuel was saying back in verses 20 and 21. Yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. And do not turn aside, for then you would go after empty things, which cannot profit or deliver, for they are nothing. And those verses are essentially the same as verse 24. And Samuel is trying to get them to understand something. And the message is is for us as well. See, when we, like Israel, when we commit major acts of unfaithfulness, what are we to do? What are we to do? Are we supposed to just play it over and over and over again in our heads? Are we supposed to wallow in it? Are we supposed to relive it and and make ourselves miserable in our guilt, thinking that if if we don't do that, if we don't wallow in misery, then there's, there's no atonement? No. You're not to do that. We, we're told to fear the Lord and serve Him in truth with all your heart. You don't go back to thinking that you, you can clean up all your messes. You don't go back and try to undo all the knots that you've created. You don't go back thinking that you can undo all the consequences of the wrongs that you did. And you don't think that that big sin you committed is going to hold you back so much that you think that you have no hope. But you have to repent. Repent. Repentance is the starting point. Then you move forward. If you don't repent, there is no starting block. You're wandering. You repent. 
then you move forward. You create the starting line, then you move forward. And from the point of repentance on out, only fear the Lord and serve Him in truth with all your heart. You move forward in grace. You move forward in the grace of God. You stop beating yourself up. You repent and you move forward. And you know, um, back before there were sterile practices for surgeries, people often died and it wasn't because of the surgery. Right? And, and their deaths weren't because of the medical conditions or, or because of other things. It was because of these non-sterile practices like probing at the surgical site with their dirty, ungloved, unwashed hands or dirty, unsterilized equipment, scalpels and all that stuff or whatever. Probing at it, continually to probe it. Poking that led to many deaths because it leads to infection. Right? And sometimes we do this with our past sins that we've repented of. Right? You keep poking. Leave it alone. Right? Like my daughter, when she scratches like these things, I'm like, leave it alone, honey. Like, let it heal. Right? If you keep on scratching, it's just going to bleed. It's just going to get infected later. Right? And, I, and I'm not talking about people who haven't repented. You're in a totally different boat. You haven't, I'm not talking about you. We can talk some other time. If you haven't done that, you have to do that first. I'm talking about people who have repented, who have that starting line. Why do you continue to probe at the sins, thinking that you have to pay a price for the wrong that you've done? Right? That somehow God finds pleasure in that? Thinking that misery is a way for you to atone sin? Stop doing that. If you've repented, you move forward. There's nothing that you can do to atone for sin. You can't do anything in terms of atonement. Because Jesus did that. Jesus. Jesus did it all on the cross. He atoned for your sins there. You can't do anything in terms of atonement. You repent, and then you move forward. You give yourself completely to God, and you move forward from your repentance, and you don't look at every single thing that you need to make right. Because God will show you the things that you need to make right. You have to ask Him. You have to ask Him, you know, Lord, reveal to me what things I need to restore, what things, uh, restitution, and what things I need to make right. But it's not everything. It can't be everything, because that's, that's impossible. Think of all the wrong that you, you're going to do everything. God will show you which wrongs to make right. And that some things are part of repentance, and some things are just you beating yourself up. So you move forward in the grace of God. You are God's child. The atonement that happened on the cross from Jesus was for you. He did it for you. He will not forsake you. And you look at verse 24 again. Consider what great things He has done for you. Consider it. It's done. You're atoned. You you can walk free. Repent and you just move forward. And it's not this motivation of fear. Even though we we talked a lot about fear in the beginning. It's not the motivation of fear that that drives us to a relationship with God. But it's because of simple gratitude. Right? You look at 24 again. Because of the great things He has done. But even though we have such a gracious God, we can't forget verse 25. But if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away. Now God and Samuel model for us some good lessons here. And God doesn't force us to obey. And Samuel still cares and, and he doesn't abandon his people even though they rejected him and they were ungrateful and they didn't follow his directions. And, and we see that both God and Samuel, 
that both of them love and they serve their people even after being rejected, even after they were disregarded. And may we thank God who reveals our sin. May we fear a holy God. May we love God who restores us. And may we consider the great things He has done for us. Let's pray. Lord, You are an awesome God. And we ask for forgiveness if we have misrepresented You in any way. If we have looked at You in a way any less than being God. Forgive us of making You in our image, forgetting that we were made in Your image. Lord, may we walk in Your ways. May we be mindful of the holy God that You are. In Jesus' name, Amen.